Section 20 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aretha Smith. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 2, Chapter 4, Part 3. That night she was restless and her sleep full of uneasy dreaming. She dreamed that Jimmy was her lover and had laid his head in her lap. But when he looked up, his face was the face of Lawrence Urquhart, and Joanna felt ashamed before him, knowing that she had that day promised to go with Lewis to New Zealand. On Monday morning she had work to do, but could not settle to anything. By this time she kept thinking Lewis must have got her letter. What did he think? She grew more and more miserably certain that he would not come the next day, that she would never see him again. Then she wouldn't, she vowed vindictively, see Lawrence either. She would join Femi and her Jimmy at Liverpool and get them to take her abroad with them. For some indefinable reason, she could not endure the idea of seeing Lawrence again unless she had first seen Lewis. She felt wild, defiant, false to everyone. Let them think of her and treat her as they liked. She would escape from them all. She would go to some place where she could live in utter solitude. But first, she wanted to hurt them all, to revenge herself on them. She could not stay still indoors, and soon after breakfast went out and walked the streets, staring at shop windows. A lust came upon her for the acquirement of new clothes. This she did not attempt to withstand. True, she had no money. All she had in her purse the day before, two pounds, which was the remains of the first payment of her designs, had been slipped as a surprise wedding present in among the folds of Femi's honeymoon nightgown. But this did not stop her. She knew that as Miss Bannerman, if not under her married name, she could get credit anywhere in town. So she bought herself a coat that had taken her fancy. It was of powder blue cloth, belted like a highwayman. And to go with it she discovered a gallant hat. Leaving her old coat and hat to be set up later, she paraded home in these new clothes. She knew not how she was to wait till tomorrow. She was inspecting her new finery afresh after the midday meal in front of a long mirror in her bedroom when Janet the old cook knocked at the door and cried out querulously that there was a visitor for Miss Joanna downstairs. Before opening, Joanna bundled her purchases guiltily into the wardrobe. Who could have called? It was not yet three o'clock. The cook stood panting outside on the landing. She exuded reproach, holding her hand with a world of meaning to the left side of her large, starchy print bosom. Mary, the housemaid, had been ill and was having a fortnight's holiday before the ordeal of the fitting. The Bannermans kept but two servants these days. And as it was, Janet herself, who had elected to carry on single-handed in the interim, sooner than have a strange girl about, Janet had acquired the right to be cross and sorry for herself from morning till night. 
but most particularly in the afternoon when anyone was ill-advised enough to ring the front doorbell before three o'clock. There is a gentleman downstairs, she said, speaking quite faintly now that she was observed. He asked for you. He gave his name, but I have nay hide for names. And if I had, the stairs would have knocked it out, o me. Noam, not a young gentleman, she replied in answer to a question from Joanna. And she fetched a yet more painful sigh. At any rate, know what you'd call young. As Joanna crossed the landing to the top of the stairs, she shook so that she was afraid she would not be able to walk down. It must be Lewis. He had come. It was only Monday, so his friends from London were still with him. But he had not been able to stay away after getting her news. He had even broken through his hitherto firm objection to calling at Colessy Street. This was the first time he had entered the house, and he had done it unasked. She began the descent of the stairs. At first, she had to move slowly, mechanically. She was so perfectly the victim of the breathing of her own heart. Her heart was a flail, an appalling, demented flail, assaulting her. All other sensation was cancelled. Under its persecution, she barely clutched consciousness, barely kept her body upright, and progressive by clinging with her right hand to the steep, downward-sloping banister. But by the time she reached the second flight, she went free from that dominion. It was gone completely, as if it had never been. And now, instead, her heart felt small, felt tiny, felt buoyant, like a boat or a bird that is serenely lifted on a quiet, immense, triumphant surge. She had never been so exempt. It was something like the fearless, sudden clarity which had come in childhood when she climbed high up on a dangerous place, or ran barefoot from stone to stone, with perilous gathering momentum down the Dernterve burn, save that now it was a duel, and therefore a rare mature ecstasy. She was poised and keen, a hawk in mid-air, a speck of perfect bliss, upheld in perfection of readiness for the predatory swoop. Yet in that same instant she also lived in every pulse for that other consummation of nature in which her breast would be transfixed by talons stronger than her own. And therein, shining in this moment of dual revelation, her new knowledge lay clear. Why, she asked herself in amazement, had she all her life taken for granted that she was innately gentle, candid, good, when in reality she was quite as innately fierce, treacherous, wicked? She had been taught, of course, that all human virtues were sadly, as by some tragic incident, with their natural opposites, qualities wild and dark but that in the struggle towards perfection, such qualities, remnants of the jungle from which Christ redeemed us, must be expelled increasingly from our lives. In their total expulsion, perfection would lie and heaven would be achieved. And this famous and stimulating doctrine had never been seriously questioned by her. She had not been able to accept Georgie's gratifying theory 
that all evil was perverted good. But now, descending the familiar staircase as by lightning, Joanna saw a different truth. It was a truth of which she had many times before had glimpses, with Gerald and Mario, even with Bob, always when her essential female being had come into conflict with the male, obscure hints of it had sought admission to her understanding. But not until now had it really emerged as something complete, authoritative, like the writing on the wall. Joanna's discovery was that evil, in the Christian sense of the word, quite as much as good, had made her alive, that evil quite as much as good had made her an individual, a human being, a divine creation herself, capable of creative life. Further, she perceived that this admission altered everything. It was as if before her eyes the Creator had once more divided chaos with the word into darkness and light. No longer did her good show dimmed and confused by her evil, nor her evil faintly transfused by her good. Her good was now dazzling and apart, a pure element of light. Her evil was utter and separate, a pure element of darkness. There were two sides of a coin. The dove was on one side, and the other side the hawk. To obliterate either was to invalidate the coinage, to defame the mint from which it had issue, and the two could be mingled only in the discreditable act of destruction. To her it was a vision, no less. She knew she would never be quite the same after it as she had been before. Smiling half-blinded as by bursting sun-rays through the house was dark enough, and it was a dull day out of doors. Joanna opened the door of the room where Louis was waiting for her. She became aware at once, by some other than her ocular sense, it seemed to her that he was grave, as she had never seen him, and intensely anxious, and her smile broadened. She wanted to shout with laughter till the hidden stars shook in their places. He had made her suffer. Now it was his turn. They stood facing each other without any formal greeting. Was that true that you wrote me? he asked. When she heard his voice, Joanna's vengeance passed. With his first syllable, that part of her consummation was complete, and she rendered up the ascendancy to him. As he watched her in cold fury, she ceased to be the kestrel poised. She became instead the small bird that flutters close to the ground for its life. After all, there was a justice in things. She admitted that rejoicing. Is it true? Lewis repeated. Yes, she said. She dared not look at him. Well, of course, you are free to do as you please. He struck out at her with venom and I suppose I'm hardly in the position to criticize. All I can say is that such a trick is the last thing I expected of you. Till I got your letter this morning, I didn't know how well I had thought of you. No one in this world but yourself could have convinced me that all the time you had been carrying on with another man. Engaged to be married. Bah! I'm so ashamed of you and still more ashamed of myself. Don't you think it was going a bit out of your way to stab an old fool in the back like that? But what's the use of talking? 
I'm sure I don't know why I came here to see you. After all, as I've already said, your life is your own to do as you like with. And I have no doubt you have got some kind of satisfaction out of fooling me. You certainly succeeded. Joanna, who had been very white in the face at the beginning of his speech, was red before it was finished. She sat down heavily on the sofa, and now her eyes never left Lewis. But he would not look at her now. Such pain as this she had not expected. Lewis, she said, say what you like to me. But that about fooling you, about carrying on with Lawrence, isn't true. And you certainly are a fool if you believe it. He never made love to me till Saturday, or perhaps I made love to him. Something drove me to it. You drove me to it. But till then I hadn't the faintest idea. Lewis had to believe this. I give it up then, he said with an assumption of still greater indifference, though before he spoke he had covertly scrutinized the quivering girl. You are all the more incomprehensible to me. What's the meaning of it all? He continued more warmly. Can you tell me? I promise I'll listen as patiently as I can and try to understand. Here is a woman. On Friday she swears she loves me, throws herself at my head, in fact. On Saturday she promises to marry someone else. There must, I suppose, be some reason. Is it that marriage is so greatly to be coveted? I thought you agreed with me about that. Didn't you tell me one day of your own accord? I never stop loving you, interrupted Joanna passionately as she pressed the palm of one hand against her throat. You know it well enough, and I don't want to get married, at least not yet, and not to Lawrence. If that's so, then you must be mad, that's all returned Lewis, and I think you are too. But a change had come over his face, and for a second his fingers went slyly to his bright mustache, an action that always made Joanna's blood mount like wine. She held her hands tightly together in her lap. Don't you see, she pleaded, it's because you don't love me enough. What can I say? I mustn't let you go on making love to me when you really care so little. For you as well as myself, I can't, can I? Don't you feel in your heart that I am right not to? Tell me honestly what you think I should do, and I'll do it. Lewis looked at her for some moments in silence. It seems to me, he said at length, that there is no more to be said. You know best what it is that you want, and if you don't think I love you enough, you are the one to judge. I can't offer to marry you. Frankly, if I could, I believe I would, if that's any good to you. But it isn't, I know. Nothing I can say or do is any good to you. Don't you think I've gone over that a hundred times in my mind? And just because I feel as I do towards you, I'm the last person to advise you. I see you sitting there looking like I don't know what. I never quite know what you make me think of and I feel I'd rather you were dead than in another man's arms. There you are. And what use is that to you? I believe you really want to get married. Besides, in any case, you have decided that I don't love you enough. So, Signor Rasponi, he continued with one of his flourishes, when he had waited in vain for some retort for Joanna, it only remains 
to wish you every happiness in the lot to which it has pleased heaven to call you. Really, my dear, he finished, becoming suddenly tired and simple, perhaps you are quite right. I honestly hope so. Anyhow, I wish you all the luck. I can't say more, can I? I only want you to do the best for yourself. And now, goodbye. He picked up his hat and stick and held out his hand. Joanna did not move. She had ached to rend open this man's heart, to wrest from him the secret of truth of his being. And she had failed. He had kept himself almost wholly inviolate. But in the attempt she had discovered anew that she needed him. He must stay. She could not let him go. All her energy now centered on this, that he must not go. Perhaps for the first time since childhood, she was in deadly earnest. The insistent warping histrionics of girlhood were gone. She was a simple, desperate woman trying to hold a man for her need. Can't you understand, she demanded miserably. I've made a fool of myself, not of you. I've made a stupid, dreadful mistake. You know I love only you, but I hoped. Don't you see? No, she exclaimed, raising her voice loudly in anger. No, no, no. And she struck upon her knees with her clenched hands, while the tears of utter humiliation rushed, scalding, from her eyes. It's impossible, quite impossible, that you should ever understand, idiot that I was. I see that now. Lewis laid aside his hat and stick again, with one of the curious deliberate movements, which with him marked excitement. And he sat himself down by Joanna on the sofa. Idiot you are, he agreed. But truly, Joanna, do you want me? I do, Lewis. You know I do. But do you want me? By God, I do. Oh, my dear child, what a ghastly pang when I thought I'd lost you. He sighed deeply, boyishly. It was a great danger that was overpassed, and now that she was once more against his breast and returning his kisses, it seemed as if their love, always sweet, was wonderfully enhanced. This was all they thought of. They easily refused to envisage the part played by Lawrence Urquhart in their new-found happiness. Surely they had been born for this thing, and the attempt to escape it was worse than idle. The result, whether for happiness or sorrow, must be left in the hands of nature, who had driven them into each other's arms. Any penalty paid by themselves or by others was better than the denial of so strong an impulse. At last they drew apart, and Lewis said he must go. But Joanna sprang up, radiant, with shining eyes and disheveled hair. Wait for me one minute. I'll walk to the station with you. She rushed upstairs, threw on the new coat and hat, and rejoined him within two minutes. Her lover noted with a pang that she looked a mere schoolgirl. Her cheeks were blazing. What? New clothes? He exclaimed in a peculiar tone. You like them? Very much. They are the best I've seen you in. But you are a madwoman, you know. I'm not at all sure that young Urquhart isn't well quit of you. End of section 20